Amen. If, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes. We are in <clears throat> chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 14 to 24 this morning. Ecclesiastes 7, picking up in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep very deep. Who can find it out? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Lord, give us listening ears to not only hear but to receive the good food of your word. And through our digesting your good word, Lord, grow us in wisdom, grow us in knowledge, grow us in understanding. Lord, for we know, we need more than we realize. So we pray that by your spirit, you might help us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Carl Wallenda gained a reputation for himself by being a daredevil, specifically through many circus acts and particularly in his tightrope walks. In March 1978, at the age of 73, he attempted a tightrope walk between the two towers of the Condado Hotel in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So he attempted the walk, and at one point... He struggles to maintain his balance for 30 seconds, and it's, it's televised. 30 seconds, he's sort of trying to gain his bearing, regain his balance. But unfortunately, the world watched in horror as Carl Wallenda fell to his death, 10 stories. Balancing, especially tightrope balancing, requires a great deal of focus. I mean, can, you can probably imagine 
what it requires, right, to shut out the entire world, pay no attention to the people who might be looking, pay no attention to the birds that are flying in the air, to pay no attention to anything else but you and balance and the rope that's in front of you. And as I'm sure many of you or all of you have seen, right, people who walk on tightrope, they use balancing poles to help them maintain their balance, but also helps with their center of gravity and keeping them below because the lower your center of gravity, well, the better stability that you will have. I think in many ways, the tightrope walk, because it's a picture of the Christian life, where the Lord calls us to walk the narrow road, the narrow path, and certainly there are different distractions, different temptations that might sort of swerve us push us, or even tempt us off the beaten path. Right? There are winds of affliction that intend to frighten us off balance. There are the crows of Satan that try to heckle us. There are the temptations, and perhaps even the guilt of our sins that attempt to, to weigh us down too much, causing us an imbalance in our center of gravity. So certainly to walk as a Christian requires a great deal of balancing to continue to focus, shut out the noises of the illusions of the world and keeps our eyes fixed, firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. And so with that, the teacher of Ecclesiastes gives us some words of wisdom if we wish to maintain this balance as we walk in this narrow path. First, we should maintain a heavenly-mindedness. Verse 14, again, it says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so the man may not find out anything that will be after him. God is the creator. God, he created all things, including our very lives and including our days. The days of prosperity and the days of adversity are all in the hand of God. God creates each and every one of them. It speaks to the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. There are no accidents when it comes to God and the reality of God. God never says, wow, I didn't see that coming. God never says, well, that, I didn't intend for that to happen, or I never expected that to happen. Now, all our times, all of our days, are in the sovereign hand of God. The good times and the bad. It's what leads Job to say in Job 2.10, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job is not saying that God is the author of evil, that God causes people to commit evil, or even tempts people to commit evil, he just simply is affirming the providence and the sovereignty of God that even evil and the days of adversity are all in the hands of God for God to do as he wills. And it's in times like these, both in prosperity and also in days of adversity, that we need to remember God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the goodness of God. This is why it's essential to understand and to know that God is good. Certainly, he is good in the days of prosperity, right? We are ready to affirm, yes, God is good. But God is also good in the days of adversity as well. 
And knowing that God creates both helps us to respond rightly to those days. So then, how do you respond to days of prosperity? Well, one way that we, a bad way, I guess, of responding to God in the days of prosperity, an example of what a bad response is, is to forget God, which is, might be easier than you think or easier than you realize, right? Because it's easy to say, well, God is good, God is great when days are great, when jobs are wonderful, there's money in the bank accounts, relationships are splendid, your health is great. But it is in those moments of prosperity that it might lend itself to forget God. In Proverbs 30, this is wise prayer. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This wise man is praying for some kind of balance. Lord, don't give me too much, lest I forget the God who provided. But neither give me too little, lest I curse the God who also creates the days of adversity. Perhaps some of you might wish that God had given you more. But have you realized that God perhaps is withholding giving you more because it would be damage, injurious to your own faith? Deuteronomy 28 speaks to worship, the worship of God in the days of prosperity. In Deuteronomy 28, God, to his covenant people, warns them of curses and judgments if they fail to continue to walk in the Lord's ways. Deuteronomy 28, 46, they shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. That is the curses and the judgments of God. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Right? There might be a tendency in some of us or perhaps all of us to not worship God in joyfulness and gladness of heart when we experience those days of prosperity. When we should. Right? We don't need anyone to teach us how to enjoy those days of prosperity. We don't need anyone to teach us how to enjoy good health and good jobs and things going well and family and life. But it's a kind of art that is learned with practice with regards to enjoying such days with a joyfulness and gladness of heart unto the Lord, remembering that God is the one who provided. God created those days. God has been gracious and merciful to you in that way. Right? There's supposed to be in kind of distinction Right, between Christians, between us and the rest of the world. Right, according to Romans chapter 1, one of the reasons that God then brings his wrath and judgment is because people are not thankful towards the Lord. Right, but let that not be our, how we are categorized. In the days of prosperity, when God means to bless us and keep us, 
let us also with joyfulness and a gladness of heart, with reverence, let us continue to worship the Lord, to be glad in him and to thank him for being so good to us. And then in days of adversity, how do you respond? How do you tend to respond? The days of adversity, God uses for many different reasons. One of those reasons might be to keep us from being tempted or lured away by the illusions of the world. So as to wake us up to reality, the idols of the world, the things that the world prizes, really are not all that satisfying and can do nothing for you with regards to eternal life. Sometimes God introduces those things as a means of grace so that we may not fall for the illusions of the world. Sometimes we become too self-sufficient. And God brings these days of adversity to clip the wings of our self-sufficiency so that we can once again rely on God, so we can trust in God. Perhaps you have not called out to the Lord or dependent on the Lord like you have in times past. And God uses such days in order to humble us, to bring us back to our knees, to be reminded that I need the Lord. So if we wish to maintain a proper balance and continue our eyes fixed in the Lord Jesus in this narrow path, maintain this heavenly mindedness that acknowledges that God is creator of both of those kinds of days. Second, you must also maintain a fear of the Lord. Verse 15 says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a white, wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Perhaps you've noticed, but this is quite, a, quite an odd passage. If you really think about it. It's a strange, really strange passage. This is one of those moments where the teacher of Ecclesiastes sort of seems to contradict himself. He says one thing in one place, and then he says something else that sort of totally contradicts what he said earlier before. And this is, as a sort, of an, a, sort of an aside, this is where the, the doctrine of inerrancy is vital. The doctrine of inerrancy simply means that the Bible is without errors. And this is vitally important with regard to the Scriptures because it concerns truth. And so when we say that the Bible is without error, we're saying that the Bible is without error with regards to the truth. The truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about our state, the truth about life, the truth about Jesus Christ. That the Bible is truth and the Bible only speaks the truth. And so when we come to passages that seem to contradict one another, we should not be so perplexed by it as if like the Lord is saying two different things. But it's all intended to be interpreted consistently harmoniously, and that God would never contradict 
truth. And when we consider passages like this, it's helpful for us to consider the person and the character of God. We know that God is good. We know that God is holy. We know that God is righteous. And therefore, God would never tell us to commit sin. God would never tell us anything that would betray his own character and nature. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The words of the Lord are pure because God himself is pure. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. The word of God proves true because God is a God of truth. So when we come to a passage like this, this odd and strange passage, right, what would God, I mean, again, it says, be not overly righteous, lest you destroy yourself. Like, really? That doesn't really make sense. If anything, I could use more righteousness in my life. Be not overly wicked, lest you destroy yourself. So does that mean I could be a little bit wicked? Is that what the Bible is saying? Is that what God is saying? Well, we know that it cannot be what God is saying because God would not tell us to be a little bit wicked. Hence why he sends Jesus into the world to be our perfect righteousness. But we have to, what we have to do is sort of discern or figure out the authorial intent. What did the author mean? We have to consider what he meant. We have to consider the entirety of the book, the themes of the book, the audience of the book, the purpose of the book, what is the author trying to say when he says things like this? Right? It's like saying, like if I said, I am so hungry, I could die. And you took my words literally, and you're like scrambling, trying to figure out, okay, how do I feed this guy? I, maybe we should call the hospital, call the ambulance to come pick you up because you need to be seeing somebody because I don't want you to die on the floor. Well, let me take this rotten apple that I found in the trash. It's something for you to eat and digest because you need something in your stomach. And I'm like, no. That's not what I meant. What I meant is that I'm really hungry. Or if I say, I am holy, I am sanctified, you might turn around and come to me and say, well, wait a second there. Just yesterday we were talking, you confessed a sin to me. You're not a holy, you're a liar. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he calls the church saints. And if you continue, if you've ever read through Corinthians, the church in Corinthians was full of many sins, and yet he called them saints. And so you have to figure out, do the hard work of figuring out, okay, what did Paul mean in calling them saints? It's not a contradictory statement. So in coming to this passage, knowing that God is consistent with his own character and nature, knowing that God would never tell us to sin or commit wickedness. I think what the author is trying to communicate here is a caution against self-righteousness. If you rely on self-righteousness, you are going to destroy yourself. Now remember, this book, if you've been following along, was written for the person who has God in mind but does not live in the fear of God. He believes that there is a God, but does not have a fear of God. In this sense, the book is incredibly helpful for unbelievers. And certainly there are some things to take away 
for somebody who's reading the book who might be an atheist and doesn't believe in any God. And certainly there are some things for us to take away as Christians. But he seems to be cautioning against self-righteousness. Self-righteousness has to be avoided because self-righteousness does not equal or result in salvation. It's no different than the the golden calf that the people of God worshipped after they came out of the exodus in Egypt, saying that this is my God, this is the one who saved me. To rely on self-righteousness is to, it's to worship a similar image, a golden image, except it's not a golden image of a golden calf, but it's a golden image of our own selves. To trust in self-righteousness is to demean and to devalue the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we have to be cautious about self-righteousness. Even the Bible says that even our self-righteousness or our good works, whatever good works we try to present before God, here are my good works, O Lord. Here's why I deserve salvation. The Bible says those are filthy rags. In other words, that your even good works are stained by sin. It's like a wife who discovers that her husband has been cheating. They have a conversation about it, and then in response, the husband goes home and, or goes away and then brings back home a brand new white Mercedes as a gesture of his apologies. Is his wife probably going to accept that? Probably not. Instead, she'll probably take a sledgehammer to that thing. Why? Because as generous as the gift was, it is stained by lies, by betrayal, by sin. And so are our good works before the Lord. If we try to pre- present them before the Lord as our measure of self-righteousness. And as a Christian, you might find yourself towards or solely moving towards a self-righteousness. If, say, you are trusting more in those good works than in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you are, say, trusting in church attendance, but there's no other fruit being born in the rest of your life, you're walking in self-righteousness. First John says, the person who loves God and hates his brother or sister or is angry with his brother or sister is hypocritical. That's a way of self-righteousness. Romans 12.3 says, for, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We are walking in self-righteousness when we think too highly of ourselves. If we are critical to what other people think or say, when we think that we are sort of in this pedestal and everybody's beneath us, when we think that we know better than everybody else and are unwilling to receive correction and rebuke, or to be even just instructed, then you're walking in self-righteousness. And the opposite end is the danger of wickedness. He gives another caution towards wickedness. And this is all intending to lead to a balanced approach. And this is a word given to those who might comfort, who find comfort in in the apparent silence or the apt, the apparent absence of God. 
those who sort of find a confidence in knowing that I can do what I want, I can do as I please, I can continue to defraud people and cheat people, I can continue to do all these things and all these sins and all these whatever things that I desire to do, I can do them and even prosper in them. And I will continue to do so because God is silent. No one's brought me to account. I haven't been caught in my actions. If there is a God, he's silent and he doesn't care. Or perhaps there is no God because I continue to get away with what I desire and want and whatever I do. But the Bible warns that, all, that those who do so are only provoking the judgment of God. To presume that God's silence means that he's approval, approving of your sins is to be as deceived as the people in days of Noah were celebrating and rejoicing, enjoying life until the dams of heaven opened up and submerged the earth and everything in it under the waters of the holy judgment of God towards sin. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God, to this day, has been patient and kind and merciful. Today is a day of salvation if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is a day of salvation. God has been kind and gracious. But there will be a day when that patience will run out, and it will be too late. Now is the time to turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But is he saying that you could be a little bit wicked? You can be wicked to a certain degree and not provoke the judgment of God. Is that sort of what he's saying in the passage here? And certainly not. The teacher likes to use language that is scandalous and provocative in order to drive home a point. He's essentially leading us to a much more balanced approach because the natural question that comes when you are reading a passage like this and says, well, how much righteousness is enough? Or how much wickedness can I have in my life without attracting the, the, the judgment of God? And he doesn't answer those questions. Because there is no answer to those questions. You can never know. And according to the rest of the Bible, you can never have enough self-righteousness in order to earn God's favor. That's for sure. This all leads to a much more balanced approach. He says, for the one who fears God, it shall come out from both of them. In other words, stand in the fear of the Lord. This is the balanced approach. Not trusting in self-righteousness, neither going and sinning or even abusing the mercy and grace of God, but walk in the fear of the Lord. That is the narrow path. The fear of God is what produces Christian piety. It's a word used, made popular by the Puritans, I think, it's definitely gone out of usage, but piety essentially means a childlike fear of God that combines 
living to the glory of God in every sphere of life with a reverential awe and zealous love for God and all his attributes. Again, this Christian piety that comes out of walking in the fear of the Lord is a childlike fear of God that combines living to the glory of God in all aspects of your life and or combined with a reverential awe and love for God. That's the balanced approach. That is the path that we're called to walk on. Not left or right, but straight in the middle. So as Christians, we want to avoid self-righteousness. And we also want to avoid using the grace of God as a license for sin. And we must also maintain, thirdly, a settledness. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Which speaks to the passage we just talked about, about righteousness and wickedness. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. There's a particular strength that comes from this wisdom that is accessible to us in the fear of the Lord. It's a wonderful strength. It is a powerful strength. And it is a strength that results in a confidence a confidence in the goodness of God, an unwavering confidence in the goodness of God. It is a wisdom that results in trusting in the providence of God. It's a wisdom that leads to perseverance and endurance in the Christian life. It's a strength that really speaks to the value of this wisdom that we, have, that we get from the Lord. And the value of this wisdom that comes from God is that provides a strong assurance in the salvation of God, more than the assurance that there might be in ten, uh, uh, ten rulers in a city. Yes, there might be protection, there might be wisdom, there might be guidance, there might be assistance, but only the strong man, Jesus Christ, is able to enter the devil's house, plunder his goods, set free those whom he has set captive, and place them into his iron grip in which none is able to snatch them away. This is the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. It is a confident trust in the assurance of our salvation that even if we were to, be, were to lose our balance, Jesus Christ is our safety net who catches us and helps us and places us back on that middle road. And the source of our wisdom also comes from knowing what the teacher says. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This is a passage that we wholeheartedly agree with. There is none righteous, no, not one. The only ones who are righteous are those who wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in the Lord Jesus and what he has done on the cross. 
But before he gets judgmental or critical of others, he remembers too how much he needs the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He remembers that he too was once alienated from Christ and has been reconciled through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other words of wisdom says, do not take to heart all the things that people say. Sometimes that is easier said than done, isn't it? Sometimes there are things that people say that sort of just tend to stick to us, like Velcro. But this speaks to the person who might think too highly of what other people think and sort of has developed this listening ear of wanting to hear everything what people say and think, especially concerning themselves. Certainly there are some things that we cannot help but hearing, but the choice of what's to let into your heart is your own choice. And when we give too much weight to the things that people say, they can cause us to become sort of shaky, wobbly Christians. It's like the wobbly air tube, man. Have you seen those that are typically like in, air, in, in dealerships with really long tubes that have a smiley face on them and they have like these, these arms and it's just carried about with the wind. It's just like this and that. And it's just like they're grounded in something, but everything else above is just like waving in the wind. Sometimes we have a tendency to be just like that. Toss to and fro especially when it comes to considering too much what people think, what people say. Because we've let the door of our heart open to what people say. The point is that we must maintain a settledness that comes from the strength of your Christian wisdom. The Bible says that the heart is sort of this open door, or this door from which springs the issues of life. Jesus says that out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. Whatever is said audibly or under your breath, your actions, your attitude, your demeanor, everything essentially stems from the heart. What is manifested on the outside is just a representation of what's on the inside. And sometimes we let the door of our hearts open to things outside of us that we should never let in. And maintaining this settledness requires you to be careful and selective about what you let into the door of your heart. It requires a self-examination. Asking ourselves, am I grounded in Jesus Christ? Am I grounded in the gospel? Do I think too much about what people think over what God thinks? And in our self-examination, let us also be careful about judging others. That's part of what the passage warns. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Why? We sin also. Jesus says, before you intend to take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye. It's not saying don't judge anybody at all, but it's talking about the attitude by which you might confront others with regards to their sin. And when we do this, we examine ourselves 
we can then come to another brother or sister with a heart of gentleness. Lastly, the Christian who maintains his balance is also a person who contentedly pursues. He pursues, but with a settled contentment. Verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find out? The teacher repeatedly brings us back to our limitations. He brings us back to reality. Lest we think too highly of ourselves, he brings us back to reality and reminds us God is God, and we are finite creatures. And we must be content with that. And for Solomon, the teacher, the wise man to say that is kind of a big deal, right? Because he is the wisest person on the planet. He's the wisest person who's ever lived. He's the intellectual of intellectuals. When he says that he searched everything, when he's tried to comprehend everything, he actually means that because he has the intellect to be able to do so. And he himself acknowledges that he's just finite. As wise as I am, as intelligent as I am, there are some things I will never know. There are some things I will never understand. And surely none of us are as wise as Solomon. Trust me, if we were, I think we would all know it by now. Solomon is the wisest man who's ever lived, and he's realized that he himself has limitations, just like we all do. Job 38 speaks to these limitations and understanding our place before God. Job, who has been questioning God and wanting to bring God to court to account for what he's done, God finally responds in Job 38. It says in verse 4, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? You weren't even born yet. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? The answer repeatedly is no, no, no. Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And on and on it goes. God continues to question. God continues to respond. And in his mind, probably, Job continues to answer, no, no, I haven't, no, God, no, 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 no. And every time, it's almost like, you can just imagine it's just sort of getting smaller. No, 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 no. Until finally, sort of like face to the ground, just like, no, no. And this is intended to bring us to a posture of humility. To a humble dependence upon God. The trust in his ways. That he is God and we are not. It brings us to a humility that produces a settled contentment. There are many things that we will never understand. Things that we wish to understand. There are so many things that we wish to know that we may never know. There are so many things that we wish to do that we may never be able to do. 
but God calls us to be content in our finiteness, to be content in what God has given to us, to be content with God. They say that, I think it's somewhere around like over 80% of the underwater realm of the ocean still remains unexplored. It's unmapped, not even, has not even been observed. Nobody yet has been able to dive and swim deep enough to explore that underwater realm that no one has seen before. And no one can dive and swim deep enough to explore the vastness of the ocean of knowledge. And less than that, no one will ever be able to dive and swim deep enough to explore the vast ocean of the knowledge and understanding of God. His ways are past finding out. His ways are inscrutable. His ways are not our ways. We can never grasp and understand all that God has done and continues to do, and even who he is. We might sometimes wish to know answers, to know different things, especially in calamity and distress and days of adversity. Why is this? Why that? How is this possible? And some of those questions will never be answered because God's ways are past finding out. But in every question that we might ask of the Lord and are seeking more knowledge and understanding, God always responds and says, as it says in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. Just be still. Be still and know that your God is God. But this doesn't mean that we never strive to know more. The humility that comes from living in the fear of God should also produce in us this rigorous pursuits of the Lord. Right? The breath of the ocean of the knowledge of God doesn't sort of put us in a place where we are just frozen and overwhelmed because there's so much to know and that we might never know. But instead, it should actually cause us to want to know more, to desire to know more. It'll, be, it'll take an eternal life to know God. Right, and it starts now. Ephesians 3, 14, the Apostle Paul prays this wonderful prayer for God's church. Right, may this be our prayer as well. Ephesians 3, 14, it says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Even though there is so much that we will not understand or comprehend with regards to God and Christ, Paul's prayer is that it might not deter us from knowing more of Christ, but that we would actually be more compelled to know more of Christ, that we would treasure him as our greatest treasure, that we might know him more and more day by day. The knowledge of Christ is like this, like this, like the Mount Everest. The Mount Everest of the knowledge of Christ beckons to be climbed and to be explored. We prefer hiking, that works as well. 
So the question is, do you desire to ascend the mountain? Do you wish to explore its terrain? Do you aspire to scale high enough to reach the sacred peak and behold the face of Christ? And if you do, Paul's prayer is that you might be strengthened to do so. That you might be strengthened to do so. This is the path, the narrow road, and it's the path that leads to Christ. And the more we remain on this fixed path, as we continue, the more and more we will know of Christ and also be conformed to the image of Christ. Our lives are given into this rigorous pursuit that is content in its limitations, but also desires to know more of Christ, driven by a hunger for Christ. The balance of the Christian life is a balance between a contentment, but also a desire to know more of the Lord. May God help us to maintain a heavenly mindedness, to keep Christ central in days of prosperity and also in days of adversity. May he help us to live our lives through the purchased righteousness of Jesus Christ and that righteousness alone and not abuse his grace. May he strengthen us to maintain our Christian rootedness in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which produces a settledness. And may God see fit to ignite a flame in our hearts that results in a contented pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Lord, if there be any this morning who are just have been distracted by the illusions of the world, Lord, would you just reorient their hearts, the spirit of their minds, to focus on Christ. Lord, to live as a Christian is, is a skill. It's an art that demands to be mastered. And it'll take a lifetime to do so. Lord, so would you be gracious and kind to us and continue to give us wisdom. Give us your guidance. Give us your knowledge. Help us, Lord, as we continue, as we strive to walk this narrow road that leads to Jesus Christ. As Jonathan Edwards once said, the Christian life is, is a is, is one that is uphill. Lord, sometimes it's trying, sometimes it's exhausting, sometimes we feel as though we do not have the endurance. And in those moments, and if any of us should feel that way this very morning, Lord, provide the strength, provide that extra push through your spirit to continue and to press into the kingdom of Christ. All to your eternal glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.